I am here in Brighton with the one and only Jeremy Corbin. Sir, it is a pleasure to be in your presence. I've admired you from afar for a very long time. Welcome to Brighton. Lovely to see you, and I'm just so looking forward to our chat. Thank you. I am as well. So the one and only Jeremy Corbin, but there's a Bernard in there too. So let's start off a little lightheartedness. Mm -hmm. Bernard, Bernard, what other famous Bernard do we both know? Bernie, <laughs> feel the burn. Feel the burn, baby. Yeah, feel yes. The burn. Yeah, There's yeah. a lot of comparisons, as you know, between you and Senator. He's a bit older than me. Bernard, just, just a little bit. Uh, yeah. Oh, are you gonna go the ageism route already, huh? Well, I mean, you know, he's a little more seasoned. When you, when you pass your three score years and ten, you notice these things. <laughs> you know how kids always sort of say, "I'm three and three quarters," or "I'm four years and six months," or something. You know? Yes. So, okay, but we notice these things. I call it seasoning. So he's just a little more seasoned. Silver foxing. Didn't you, silver foxing? <laughs> there, there are a lot of comparisons, as you know, between you and the magnificent mm -hmm. Senator Bernard <coughs> Sanders. Mm -hmm. Is it coincidence, uh, maybe providence, that uh, both of you have Bernard in your names? I wonder what was going through our parents' <laughs> names at the time. But the only thing I do know is, what I don't know, that when I was due to be registered, my birth registered, my mom and dad agreed on a, the name. Yes. And my dad then cycled off to the town, because we lived in the country, to register me. And then he comes back with a birth certificate with the names on I've got. And it wasn't the ones they agreed to. <laughs> what did your mom? Well, she would never tell me. <laughs> she said, I can't tell you what it was. And she it, never obviously, it, there must have been a bit of an issue between them, because I would have thought, you know, you agree on the child's name, and right. then one of them changes it. He only had one job which was to go and get the name you, that they yeah. agreed on, and he came back and did something totally different. Mm. Mm -hmm. okay. And they would never tell me what it was. And to this and day. she would never say. She, she would said, never nope, say. Never going to tell you. You're talking about keeping <coughs> secrets. So there we are. There we but, are. You know, so JC it became. JC, I love it. And, and both you and Senator Sanders are compared a lot. Mm. How does that make you feel? He's, well, I've got a lot of admiration for Bernie. Um, he politically, I suppose, developed on the fringes of the Democratic Party, um, and uh, his record speaks for itself. You know. He was there with the civil rights marchers yes, he was. in the South, and he then ran as a complete outsider for mayor, yeah. and then got re-elected. And when he was doing this chat the other day at The World Transformed, he was asked a question about this, about the powers of local government and so on. And he took us all back to Burlington and how he got elected. And he won by 10 votes. That's right. And how council meetings went from a boring meeting of the um, elders and betters of the town. Uh, and he said he became mayor and he started doing stuff and hundreds of people would come to council meetings and be speeches, demonstrations, participation and everything. And you could sort of see um, it was probably pleasantly and wonderfully slightly chaotic, but above all, optimistic. And that's what Bernie is. He, what I love about Bernie is he's, he's so completely optimistic. He called me up after the 2017 election on the Sunday night. I was, as you probably guess, pretty tired by then. Of so course. I was 
Um, I'd been to my allotment in the afternoon to do some gardening there, and I came home and I'm sort of stretched out on the settee with the television on, watching some rubbish. And, and the phone rings, uh, and, and he said, um, I just want to have a few words with you. I said, Who are you? And he says, It's Bertie. I said, Bertie, who? Because <laughs> I was kind of half asleep, and he said, Bertie Sanders. I said, Ah, great. <laughs> and how long did you both Age, chat? Ages. Yeah. Chat. So and obviously our teams and offices keep in touch and uh, I was obviously very sad that he didn't get the nomination on either occasion but uh, I was sad run, too. I'm sure you were yeah. but I'm sure the lesson is that who would have thought that in the 21st century somebody self-describing as a socialist would come so near to winning. A so democratic And that's the first time since what? Eugene Debs and Henry it Wallace. Is. Henry Wallace Over possibly. But Eugene Jebs Eugene Jebs was not what, nineteen twenty one? Yeah. And so to describe yourself as a socialist and come so near, it gives me a lot of hope about young people in the United States. And I obviously follow Bernie very closely and we keep in touch. He's a great, great guy. He is tremendous and I'm glad you too and it's not any, it doesn't come to a surprise that you both, you are kindred spirits. So a lot of excitement over you as well. You both have a way of exciting the younger portions of... I have trouble with the older ones. Yeah, you, you both do. We, yeah. you know, on the Sanders campaign we would just always scratch our head because his contemporaries <laughs> definitely very little support but the millennials absolutely love mm. him and the same can be said about you you definitely lit a fire under younger people in this nation and you are well, the young people get a bad deal they do I mean, you, you, you young know, adjacent too. I mean, I'm not saying this country's perfect it isn't in it in many 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 ways but I grew up with a free health service free education service and the possibility of getting reasonable cost housing and the likelihood of a job when I left school, it was thought to be absolutely shocking that one of my classmates had to wait three weeks before he started work. It was shocking. Yeah. You know, the idea you just walk into it. That, that period of full employment and relative security. And now you've got... Um, if you think of a middle-aged family, couple, in, in Britain, in the USA, uh, anywhere was followed this sort of neoliberal economic path, they was thinking, middle-aged, we both saved a bit of money, we're doing okay, we can settle down and look forward to a comfortable later years. Not a bit of it. They're stuck with their children's college debt, That's right. and they're stuck with the care costs of elderly parents. And so their lives then become a sort of bank for the younger people and the older people, if they're both in work. That's right. If, and if they've got a house. And uh, the stress levels in society of people doing two and three jobs just to try and make ends meet. You know, we've passed a milestone in Britain last week. We've got more branches of food banks across the country than we have of McDonald's. That is insane. So for people who believe, especially the ultra-wealthy, because this is what this is about, and we have this debate in the United States, and I am amazed, and maybe I should not be amazed, but from my time here in Britain, Brighton, excuse me, to listen to the stories, 
the similarities are uncanny that the mm. struggle for human for decency for the poor and the working poor and what I call the barely middle class mm. is absolutely universal mm. you speak of a time where jobs were a certainty you weren't going to graduate with debt in one hand and a degree mm. in the other and you could believe that your children's future would be better than yours mm. that is not the case now in your country and that certainly is not the case in the United States of America how do we do we see a time where we can have with a surety the decency of work a living wage and people being able to increase their education without going broke well we're winning battles on this we're winning the political battles and the, the battles over the $15 an hour all across the states has made a massive difference and when that slogan first came up, people said, ah, you never get anywhere with that hopeless. They won it, place after place after place. Okay, the US federal system, well, it works both ways. Some, some of it is advantageous. Here, we won the principle of a minimum wage in um, 1997. My uh, union uh, I used to work for was called the National Union of Public Employees. We put forward the argument for a national minimum wage and I was really pleased when we finally got it into legislation uh, but it's inadequate and the living wage is um, barely livable upon but the principle of it is there we campaign on that but we also campaign on the issue of ending college fees and I put that in both of our manifestos and would absolutely want to campaign on that forever because I I was accused of saying, well, you know, if you're only interested in getting rid of college fees, you're actually helping the middle class kids. Now, we have to have a definition issue here because middle class in the USA and middle class here mean different, completely different right. things. The middle class here are relatively well off compared to the working class population, whereas the middle class in the USA would in fact be a lot of what we refer to here as a working class community. That's right. So it, it can be quite confusing. And, and so uh, as long as there's a sort of a health warning for all of our viewers yeah. in whichever country they happen to be watching us. Um, but I was accused then of saying, well, actually what you're doing is helping them. I said, no, what I'm doing is asserting the principle. We have the right to health care. We should have the right to education from cradle to grave, Amen. including adult education, so that those that didn't get to go to college, didn't do very well at school, all kinds of reasons, can get free education. We used to have a lot of that, we had free adult education. It was gradually taken away by Thatcher, by Major, and it wasn't brought back under New Labour by Blair. And so what we were doing in both our manifestos was actually reasserting a sort of very basic socialist values into health, education, housing and how we manage the economy. Now I've often heard Bernie talk about this. Who runs the economy? Governments think they do, but in reality it is a relatively small number of global corporations yeah, that decide sector. what goes on. They're the, the real powerhouses. Right. And um, I remember Tony Benn discussing this once. Uh, I knew Tony Benn very well. You're familiar with Tony Benn. I've obviously. heard of him. Um, he came to a meeting in the 1970 Labour Party conference in uh, Blackpool. We'd just lost the election, but we came back three years later. And he sort of shuffled into this, he called it 
labour and industrial meeting or something. There were about 20 people there. And he, he came in carrying a cardboard box of papers, which seemed a bit odd to me, but, you know, there you go. He's quite eccentric. So he sits down with this box of papers beside him and then lights his pipe and then sort of starts talking about his experience as a minister and started pulling documents out of this box about the pressures he was under by from Esso, from Shell, from all the big companies, because he was Minister of Technology, Minister of Industry and so on. He was trying to introduce uh, the ideas of a more democratic run of industry, which he did do later on. And um, he said, I realized that my education was all for naught. In reality, the power structures are way beyond the powers of national governments. It is about international action on global corporations. Yeah. And that is a truism, unfortunately. And and even more so today, probably. And it's getting worse. Uh, a lot of power and money concentrated in the hands of a few, and the many suffer. What you are describing in terms of a livable wage, education for all, whether it's college or to be highly skilled in technical training, health care. And nursery, preschool. Get, must have it. That is yes. the, the biggest point of discrimination amongst poorer kids is the preschool and you see it in year one. Year one for us in primary is sort of four or five, rising fives. Um, where those kids have had a good nursery and have had all those advantages, they're zipping they along in school. Yes. Those that didn't get that chance or didn't go to a good nursery or didn't go to any nursery at all, less socially developed, less able to um, integrate with and play with other children. And so I'm actually more interested in the model that Finland and other countries have got where they actually start school later. They start formal school at seven. Wow. Which, you know, some of you say, kids should learn earlier. No, I think the most important education for children is learning. Is experience. Experience, play together, respect yeah. each other, grow up together, and the rest follows from that. And the outcomes in Finland seem pretty good. So overall we're talking about a social contract yeah. uh, with, with our people. Grave. That's it. Cradle to grave. We have a wonderful project in the states. It's called the Harlem Project. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Canada and he took on that mm -hmm. experiment if you will of a community type definitely needed corporate backing for the money. Sometimes corporations can make some good investments, but through that social, uh, through that public-private partnership, he created this um, tightly knit operation for children uh, in Harlem, and he believes in the cradle-to-grave concept, too. I wish we had enough resources. We do have enough resources, whether or not we have the will to take the best of what Dr. Jeffrey Canada created for that community and scale it up for all Do you find that we can also oppose racism in the nursery and so on by children playing together from very early I on? I think Good. so, but it also determines what, what they're taught at home too because your parents are your first and best teacher. But if the question is whether or not exposure to different cultures and different experiences mm. broadens one's horizons, and it decreases the likelihood that you will grow up and be a big kids playing That's together true. for the first time. I have. They, they don't notice each other's no. color or, it's their essence. or anything. I'm having fun with my friend. Yeah. But all of a sudden we grow up and we lose that. Yeah. yeah. We lose that. 
do you, uh, is race and class a factor in one's ability to live a good life or not so much? Yeah, absolutely. Race and class are, and I'm glad you linked the two together because uh, they're often sort of, race is seen as some kind of separate debate from class. It's not. The two things absolutely go together. And um, it is a massive factor in poverty, in discrimination, in attitudes of the legal system, in education achievements. And uh, the institutional discrimination that exists is the hardest one to deal with. It is. I think it was Malcolm X. Who one said of my favorites. I think it was him, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, who was in a discussion about sort of liberal America and its support for the black community and anti-racism. He said, I think it was him, said something like, we'll defeat racism in the deep south before we do in Massachusetts. <laughs> because he said at the end of the day, yeah. the class interests of the poor black workers and the poor white workers will eventually realize they have the same interests. Well, I, I think he was perhaps a bit over-optimistic there, but the principle isn't wrong. I know when, when Minister Malcolm came from Mecca and he started to see the world differently, yeah. that he didn't just relegate all white people to being Absolutely. forever uh, unable to be redeemed, mm. that he did understand the human condition. I'm not so sure if he made that quote or not, Mm. However, I, mean, I, 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 was, yeah. I, I wish I yeah. could, or paraphrasing. I wish I could exactly. But, but, but the point, the point is the same. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the United States, and I'm sure you have been watching too what has happened and is happening to the Haitian migrants. Yeah. And the way the disparate treatment, all immigrants of color in the United States of America are treated poorly, black immigrants even worse. Can't we do a history lesson on Haiti? We should. Because you think about it, French colony. Yes. Slaves. Yes. Different slave port. Slave uprising, yeah. led by Toussaint Louverture. Yes. And all that went with it, and they defeated the French, they defeated the army, and they formed the first Black Republic in 1790... 1797 or so? Yeah, sounds yeah, right. So yeah. Around 1797. Yeah. But it's a very big but the price was this massive debt that was that they had to pay them. to france they had to pay they had to pay the compensation to the slave owners for freeing themselves from slavery insanity and it was a principle the british adopted later on when they took but they nationalized it and the state paid sure. the compensation and so haiti was born out of the most heroic struggle on the face of the earth yeah. against everything and much as we all applaud the French Revolution, it was the post-revolutionary government in France that sent the troops there to attack Toussaint Louverture. So true. Racist superior supremacy, if you like. Anyway, that debt then changed hands a few times. The US invaded a few times to collect the debt, and the World Bank is busy collecting the debt, and so on and so on. Haiti's never had a chance. No, between that and natural, so between man-made disasters yeah. and natural disasters, yeah. It has never been able to live up to its full potential. And then the current crisis of um, Haitian refugees in Mexico, trying to get across the border, then being thrown back, and then put into the most appalling conditions. What has happened 
to humanity in this. Because people like to have a feel-good factor about the history. Of course. They like to say, we saved these refugees. We saved the refugees from Nazi Germany. We saved the freed slaves and so on and so on. The reality is, history is going to judge the early part of the 21st century very, very harshly. At a time of a crisis of 70 million refugees around the world, growing quite quickly, victims of war, oppression, yeah. climate chaos, cetera, climate, absolutely climate yeah. refugees. Yeah. What are we doing? In Britain, we're sending um, vessels out into the English Channel to keep refugees away. Austria and other countries put up barbed wire fences to keep them out and electronic surveillance. Camps are set up which don't look that different to prison camps on the borders of Europe. And the poorest countries don't have the numbers like Europe. They have 10 and 100 times the numbers. Bangladesh has a million refugees from uh, Myanmar. Where's the support for them? Where's, it, it's, it's horrible what is going on. And so it is a human thing that's needed that we stand with refugees. In solidarity is one of the stains on humanity, and we are going to have to answer to it one way or another. And that's where, to me, the, the notion of solidarity of poor and working poor mm. in the world, that this is a global struggle mm. against powerful interests that actually don't give a damn yeah. about the environment, whether it's the physical environment or the human environment, all they care about, and the senator has said this, other great leaders say this time and time again, especially those leaders who actually care about people, mm. that greed is a religion. Yeah. And it is winning right now. So what do you, so if that is the case, how do people like you and how do people like me continue to tell the masses that they must keep fighting because a better day is possible? How do we do that with a straight face? Well, if we don't fight, what's the alternative? The late, great Bob Crow, he was General Secretary of the Rail Maritime Transport Union, and he was a huge figure and dominated his union in a good way. And he said, we fight every struggle. We don't win every struggle, and we lose some. But I can guarantee how you can lose every struggle. Don't fight Don't at all. Don't fight at all. Just right. abdicate from the field yeah. and you'll make sure you always lose. Wow. How were our unions built? How was slavery ended? The fight. How was the Civil Rights Act got in the USA? The fight. How was the National Health Service got here? Yeah. All these achievements. All the independent struggles. How were they achieved? By people sitting back saying, well, don't dabble in that, can't happen. So the moral of the story is we keep fighting no matter what. Yeah. We're going to win some, we're going to lose some, but ultimately justice is going to win. But then also um, the experience of people doing something for themselves leads into other things. I mean, you think of a community at a quite small level might campaign for road safety in their area, might campaign for improvements to school, better park, nursery, and they win. And then the landlord comes and starts messing with them. They say, oh, hang on a minute, you're not doing that. We're strong. We're a community. We'll stand up. Yeah. And so you empower and strengthen people.
by doing that. And then think on the bigger scale, the generations um, in the USA, the generations that um, remember the Vietnam War and the campaigns against it, and whilst eventually the Vietnam War ended, of course, and more died, Americans died from suicide afterwards than died in it, and many, many times more Vietnamese died. All those that took part in protests against the Vietnam War learnt something from it. And the later generation that um, opposed the Iraq War, yeah. um, we didn't stop the Iraq War. But I remember going to Washington in um, January 2003 for a big march against, against the Iraq War. And um, there was a huge turnout. And there was, uh, I just remember talking to this family. They looked cold and hungry and tired. And I said, you're okay? They said, yeah, we've just driven from the Midwest. I said, oh. I said why? They said, well, we had to be here. We had to be here. Yeah. We had to be here to strengthen our resolve because we live in a very pro-war community. But we have to, and we now feel stronger to go back and campaign. Our presence must be. And it was, uh, and that is experience all round. And uh, yeah. I also went to um, San Francisco for the big demonstration in February 2003. And that was amazing. It was just such a range of people came together. It was hundreds of thousands there, it was just massive. And it was everybody, all communities, all ages. Now, okay, we didn't stop the war. But surely now you're looking at the refugee flows from Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah. Libya, Syria. Yeah. And, you know, wars have consequences. They do, and generational consequences. Yeah. I mean, thinking about the Iraq War and uh, how uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee was the, the only, only one. She stood the only one alone to vote against and the, voted against it. And the now, powers that Bush gave himself, wasn't it? Right. And, but she's been proven. Right. But the pain she went through at the moment, you're not a patriot. I first met her when she came here with Ron Dellums. Oh my God, when the Ron, amazing. Ron was um, convener of the Black Caucus. Yes. And he uh, was a great friend of Tony and um, Tony Benn. And Tony called me up and said, oh, Ron Dellums is coming. Will you come and join us? And so there was just the four of us having the chat. She was amazing. Quite She then leader. worked for Ron. And, you know, she served the, <coughs> the great... Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, unbought yeah. and unbossed, who I definitely patterned myself uh, after, including my grandmother too. But uh, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, the courage that she had in 1972 to go against all the forces and say, I am going to run for president of the United States of America was nothing. And, and it, it is because of her spirit that so many other people who otherwise society would look at and say, you, how dare you? Yeah, you can't run. Who do you think you, you are? Run. What do you, so you have a project going on? Yes. You see yeah, let's talk subtle, about that. Subtle little yeah, banner here. Yeah, peace. Called the Peace and Justice, Justice. Project. Justice. Tell us about well, that. Well, uh, after we had the, uh, well, let's, let's be polite about it and call it the disappointment. We don't have to be polite. Well, the disappointment of not winning the 2019 general election. Yeah. Um, and I then ceased to be leader of the party. Um, and 
my wonderful and brilliant and very loyal team with me and I had long conversations about what we do afterwards. Obviously, we want to defend the political positions we've got, but also provide a space and a place for all these people that have become mobilized and politicized by the programs we put forward. Sure. And so we decided we would set up, there was talk about a foundation, but that sounded a bit, a bit pompous. I didn't, I didn't want that. So we eventually, after a lot of debate, decided we'd call it the Project for Justice and Peace. And uh, we launched it and we got, um, we did it all online during the COVID lockdown. So it was obviously not a physical event. Well, it was physical for me, but not for that many people. When 500,000 people came on that first call, 500,000 around the world. Everybody. People. Yeah. Noam Chomsky came on and lots yeah, of other people. Professor Chomsky. And Ronnie Casrills from South Africa and yeah. Zara Sultana, who's a brilliant young member of parliament. Oh, here. yeah. So we had a huge range of people came on. And Are you surprised by the fact that you can move so many people? A bit, yeah. Yeah. A bit, yeah. And then what we've done. Why does that surprise you? Well, it's not about me, is it? It's about ideas. It's about giving people hope. It's giving people a space. It's not doing me. I'm just a person do, doing my job. But it's about giving people space to do things. And that's what the project does. We've set ourselves four big areas of work. Um, media, economy, environment, global. Media because, um, well, we're doing this podcast. Why? Because um, I don't think CNN would take us. <laughs> well, we will take you not only on podcast, but yeah. TYT, the conversation. <laughs> we want you. But around yeah. the world, there's a lot of us doing stuff like that. Yeah. A lot of these things. And so what we've done over media is challenge Rupert Murdoch's ownership of um, excessive amount of media in Britain and the news values that go with it. Sure. And we've set up these news clubs around the country where people come together in their community and challenge the way the news is reported locally come together and look at alternative sources of news, come together and use their own self-made channels. And we're working with all the channels in Britain, Double Down News, Canary, Squawk Box, and so on, all of these, and obviously good friends like yourself. And then next week, we're in uh, Manchester, and we're holding a um, big media ownership event from Media Democracy Campaign, at the People's History Museum, because the whole history of popular struggle has been getting the word out. Yes. Now, when I was 18, I thought it was brilliant that I could uh, use a hand duplicator and I could work really hard all night and I could turn out a thousand <laughs> pamphlets, <laughs> make it 2,000 by cutting them in half with a guillotine, yes. and then go and distribute them. That was a big wow. deal. I've got 2,000 leaflets out. and that taken a whole lot of us about 24 hours of work. <laughs> you can press a button on Twitter. I've got two and a half this million followers This is our head duplicator right now, there, right? And it, it's out there. And so, <laughs> and COVID has shown us that you can actually use this technology to great advantage for good, in yeah. mobilizing people, like support for the Indian farmers and yeah. so many others. But it's also shown the dangers. Indian farmers doing well, Centre of Delhi, government on the rack over their awful legislation, what happens? All cut off. No internet, no Facebook, yes. no Twitter, no YouTube, nothing.
the power of these companies to decide what we know and what we don't know and the algorithms that follow it. I mean, you must have observed the Trump campaign and the oh, algorithms no that went with it. There's some scary stuff in yeah. all that, you know. And that is what we've got to analyse and understand and deal with. Otherwise, our information, our way of communicating with each other, is formed by somebody else. So that's the media side of things. But th There's three other areas which okay. I'll come on to because I'm determined to tell you all. Okay, okay. Yeah. We got three. No, go but, the, but the beauty of people communing together to try to beat back against the yeah. major conglomerates being yeah. able to but okay so we got media our so other three. Me media to us is very important so to build this um yeah we have the same network. conundrum and in so the United we can States. all link up on this and yeah. so um if you look at the way that ever morales campaigned back he was forced out of bolivia by lawfare a coup call it what you will but forced out well done, Mexico, and giving him the space. He then goes to Argentina. And I'm then talking to him in Argentina on sort of WhatsApp calls and so on. And um, he's saying, yeah, what we're doing now is a campaign in every village in, um, in Bolivia. And I'm sort of asking, well, great, but have they all got phones? Have they all got contact? He said, no, no. What we do is one of our team goes there in advance, finds a source of a signal for a phone or whatever, set up a big screen, and there's a village meeting. Amazing. And look what happened. Yeah. In six months, they turned the whole thing around and resoundingly won an election by even more than they'd won it before. And that's because they communicated. It was very hard very difficult and he then obviously came back to Bolivia. There's other examples around the world so it is about building the strength and you you look at the way in which um, the struggle of the black community in the south was always about communicating. Black newspapers that were burnt down, offices yeah. destroyed yeah. and so on. Trade union papers that were destroyed. Those that set up free newspapers in Detroit and Dearborn. Well the powers that be understood that they that understood type of independence that's right. They understood the danger. That's right. So that's why we've got to be serious about media and access. It's not about controlling journalism. It's not about controlling thought. It's about it's having about other access. options. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Having the options. We have the same struggle in the, in, in the yeah. United States as well. And your other three areas? Other three areas, economic justice. Uh, it, our society has become more divided during COVID. Uh, more billionaires and more poverty than ever before. Absolutely. Wages frozen or gone down. Public expenditure on crucial services, particularly local government, which is the main provider of health and education, gone down. And the health service being privatised by this government. And at the same time, tax exemptions gone up and the number of billionaires has gone up. We have a government that works totally for the rich. It's, Donald Trump did exactly the same, but pretended he was doing something else. And um, so we obviously challenge that, partly by mobilizing people in food co-ops, but also, fundamentally, campaigning for union recognition, the right to be in a union, the right to work, campaign against the cuts. And there's also one campaign that I think we're going to win on very soon, and that's the thing called Fire and Rehire. A lot of these companies are coming out of um, the lockdown. The, the furlough scheme is ending, 
which means that the government paid the wages of or 80 percent of the wages of people the companies are now either getting rid of them altogether or in some cases dismissing the entire workforce because the 80 percent is yeah, no longer no longer available mm -hmm. they've had the money then in dismissing the entire workforce then rehiring them on lower wages, worse conditions, less pension, less holidays, etc., etc., and so we're doing a piece of legislation called End Fire and Rehire as a private member's bill in Parliament in October, um, October 22nd, and we think we can get it through that stage because it's, there's been a big public campaign on it, and this will be a bit of a turning point for the trade unions in this country. So we've been saying a lot about that here. So. The point is, you win one thing, you win more afterwards. That's it right. becomes a, a snowball effect. Wins, so, we get wins. That's right. Yeah. And uh, also, we put forward in both our manifestos, not just public ownership of the mail system, water service, and railway system, and the energy companies. They are natural public monopolies. There's only one pipe. There's only one wire that brings water, uh, uh, electricity in. There's only one pipe that brings gas into your house. There's only one mailbox in your house. They yes. ought to be publicly owned and publicly Public run. Good. I mean, I admire the fact the U.S. Postal has never been privatized, though they have tried. Although, I was going to say, the trying. Republicans continue to try, and they're trying to choke the lifeblood out of the they keep United States Postal yeah. Service. Yeah, yeah, we wanted to expand. I mean, one of the things sure. in the Sanders campaign was the for postal banking. We thought that that was important Absolutely. to do away with uh, predatory lending practices. Banks, I mean, post offices are in every community, yeah. and their mandate is different because it is, in fact, it's a public, a public good. Hmm. Yeah. I never quite understood why they needed to sponsor cycling in the Tour de France, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I, never, I, never, I never really got that <laughs> one. But, you know. And but your whatever. last one. Um, and then... Obviously, that links in because the two things are interconnected on the environmental questions. And now, I acknowledge there's a climate crisis. I acknowledge there's climate change going on. I acknowledge that we have to do something about it and dramatic. We have to build a green industrial revolution. Yes. If we approach environmental issues on the basis of saying, you should eat organic healthy food. You should breathe clean air. You're not going to get a hearing for a lot of people that can't afford to live in a neighborhood that has clean air, can't afford to buy organic food, and have no choice in these matters. And you're accusing them of causing pollution. Sure. And so it is about a green industrial revolution that protects and extends jobs whilst converting industries into something more useful. So we're working with shop stewards, trade union people and so on, on how you build up an environmental basis of your campaigning at the workplace. If you don't involve working class communities and trade unions in a green industrial revolution, you will not achieve change. My worry is that COP26 in Glasgow in uh, November is going to be a load of greenwash. It's going to be big companies saying, um, uh, you know, we're doing things in a more sustainable way and we planted a thousand trees last week or something. Great. It's better than not planting any. But what are you actually doing about the fundamentals of what you do, the mining industries, the extractive industries and everything else? Which then leads you on to something else that you started this whole conversation with 
about the um, religion of greed. Yeah. Religion of greed and the belief that you can forever keep on taking more and more out of the earth and it has no effect. It does. It does. We you all die. You destroy the natural world, That's right. destroy the biodiversity, eventually you end up destroying yourself. The because ecosystem. You have to have a, it's a state of mind yeah, that is. we are part of a universe but, and but, a natural world. But, but you know what, Mr. Corbin, what they're going to do is just go in outer space. They've been testing it already. So they'll Looking blow up another, this, planet, and they're going to yeah. go and mess up that other planet as well. No, well, I so just, Richard Branson's going to get I, there first, and he's going to start the first one. Yeah. I mean, please, I, I just want them to stay down here. Don't mess up the stuff up there in the stratosphere. To closing for this portion of our conversation, one is, you know, the great President Nelson Mandela used to say, it, seemed, it always seems impossible until it is done. How do we continue people to see the unseen and to have a vision for the future while they yet struggle in the present? I'm inspired by young people. I am too. And um, last week we had a demonstration on this World Climate Day of young people in outside Parliament in central London. I went there to listen to them and talk to them and be with them. And um, what amazed me was their knowledge. Their knowledge of the science surrounding climate change. Sure. Their understanding of an economic process which uh, deliberately produces more than we need, that develops for planned obsolescence, and all that goes with that. And the way in which they have educated themselves and prepared to campaign on it. And they were then making demands that their school buildings all become net zero. They were making demands their curriculum include stuff about climate change and environmental destruction. And so I'm inspired by young people around the world and what they're trying making to the demands. achieve. We have the Sunrise Movement in, in the United States of America, young people making the demand. Absolutely, making yeah. their demands. and so. I think that's where the, the optimism I have comes from, and I'm sure you do as well, because uh, why should we leave to the next generation the burden. a pile of debt for their education, yeah. a pile of bills because they'll have to pay for their health care, and a pile of debt because they've got to pay for our care as we need it as we get older? Well, it's not right. There has to be a redistribution of wealth and power. I remember Bernie Sanders saying once, and he said, he, you know, he knocks his hair back like this. It's great the way he does it. He's got more <laughs> hair than me, despite being older. And he, so, and he sort of goes, America's great. America can afford anything. America can go to the moon. We can invade anywhere. We can do anything. But you know what? There's one thing we can't afford, and that's the inequality. And if we want to do any of these things, we've got to end the inequality. Amen. And it, it, so right the way you put it. Yeah, we want to do any of those things. We must end inequality in all yeah. of its forms. Yeah. Well, Mr. Jeremy Bernard Corbin, it has been a pleasure to have you on the conversation. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you very much. I hope I haven't talked too much. You were wonderful. <laughs>